that's our series. You see the little byline from inward beliefs to outward benefits. How do we face outward as a church? Why are we saying that? How do we face outward as a church? What's that all about? Well, imagine if you tell somebody that you're a marathon runner, but only on Tuesdays. Yeah, I'm a marathon runner, but just, you know, it just, it just only hits me on Tuesdays that, uh, that I need to have a lifestyle that, uh, that is commensurate with running marathons. Just on Tuesdays, I'm a marathon runner. That's, that, that's a little like saying that the church has a department called missions. We are a mission, and we're called to take what, what has wrought a change in us and to build a bridge to be able to face outward with those beliefs that have changed the world, that we may be a part of what God is doing. And so last week we talked about bridging differences, deep differences between people. This morning, bridging cultures. Cultures. Sometimes cultural differences are small, like in marriage. Do the forks go up in the dishwasher or down? These are small things now, people. These are small things, all right? I have to remind you of that because sometimes people think that's a big deal. <laughs> Maybe I'm speaking about myself. I don't know. They go either way, but that's a cultural difference. Do you, uh, are you part of the Irish clean plate club or are you like the Italians? Do you leave a, one bite to compliment the chef that you had plenty. Cultural differences. Do you, do you unwrap a gift on Christmas Eve? Or do you wait until everything, you know, is everything unwrapped on Christmas morning? Small cultural differences. Sometimes differences between cultures are small. Sometimes they're big. In Brazil, there's a, a tribe that has a rite of passage that is really gruesome. And I'm going to describe it to you quickly. The idea is that uh, boys are initiated into manhood by sticking their hand inside of a basket filled with bullet ants. And bullet ants have a sting that is 10 or 20 times more painful and long-lasting than a yellow jacket. Now, can you imagine sticking your hand inside? Or can you imagine this? Honey, I'm going to take uh, Junior out back, and I'm going to have him stick his hand inside a yellow jacket nest to, to show that he's a man. See, sometimes cultural differences are big. You could get, in our culture, you could get put in jail for doing something like that. Or at least have a child taken away from you by child protection services. Sometimes cultural differences are big. So how do we, how do we face outward in a way, uh, across those cultural differences, in a way that begins with first things, that helps people see where do we start, where's square one, what is the priority of our message? How do we do that? Sometimes it can take a long period of time, especially when you're dealing with something like slavery. slavery. So I've mentioned William Wilberforce a couple of times. It took him about 40 years standing up against slavery in Great Britain. Towards the end of John Wesley's life, he, he wrote a, a little note of encouragement to Wilberforce. I think he knew, Wesley knew that he was about to die, and he wanted to encourage Wilberforce in what he was doing. He said, he said if God is not in what you're doing, I think it's going to wear you out entirely. But if God is for you, who can stand against you? 
This was a deep cultural divide between what the gospel says about the image and nature of God in every human being and the cultural norms of that day. How do we bring our influence into our culture and across cultures around the world? Well, what we're going to see from Paul this morning as he faces the Areopagus in his famous speech in Athens called Mars Hill is that we begin to bridge the distance, we begin with affirmation. From the Word of God, Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 22. Hear God's Word this morning. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, unquote. Even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let's pray. Father, bless us now to receive this, your word, as a light on our path, a lamp unto our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, a man named uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, actually it was Richard, his, his brother, Richard Niebuhr, wrote a book called Christ and Culture. And he talks about the difference between engaging with culture, engaging, the church engaging and facing outward in a way that's aggressive on the one hand, or completely withdrawn on the other hand, and everything in between. He, he, he made sort of five points, the ways that the church can face outward and engage with culture. It almost goes from, fl- from fight to flight, from the Crusades to those little horse and, horse-drawn buggies in Pennsylvania, the Amish. Right? You can see the difference between the way that people take their faith and face outward with it, from fighting to fleeing to withdrawing. How are we to face outward? Some years ago, James Davidson Hunter wrote a book called To Change the World, and his central thesis was this. We need to provide a faithful presence in our world, 
a faithful presence. Neither to withdraw from the world and just do our own thing, nor to aggressively, uh, as they say, bow up on, on our culture and start throwing punches. We need to provide a faithful presence, a transforming presence. So what does that look like in this passage? Well, you see what Paul's doing is he's looking around the world. He's seeing what God is already up to, and he's getting involved. That's the sermon in a sentence. Here we go. Looking around the world, seeing what God is already up to, getting involved. First, he looks around the world. He, sees, he, he looks around the world to see uh, the design of the world, to see the common grace present there. He's looking around and he's, he's seeing, he's, he's, he's addressing the Areopagus. And this is this mashup of, of scholarly businessmen. I mean, th- this, is, this was the pinnacle of civilization at the time. And he's talking to, it, it's almost as if you take maybe a, a Manhattan uh, lawyer and, and uh, combine that with a, uh, with a, with a Wall Street banker and, uh, and then combine that with, with somebody, maybe an imam. from so, so just the mashup of religion and business, and he's speaking to the, the, the titans of that day. And, and he's being sort of ironic because he's saying, I see you're very religious. This is so funny because he's saying, you're, you guys are so religious that, that you're covering your bases. You even have an altar to, an unknown, to the unknown God. I always sort of, I look at this and I laugh because he's saying, you know, the way the language goes, it's like this, that, that Athens was awash, like swamped in idols. And so he takes this example that's already there. He's saying, you know what? I can work with that. I can work with that. Do you see how that's common grace? He's saying, look, you already know what the truth is. You already know that there's something beautiful about the design of this world. You know intuitively, as, as it says in Romans 1, it says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul wrote that to the Roman church, and now he's living it out in Athens. He's saying, we know this is true. We know that there has to be someone, something beautiful behind this incredible universe that we see. I can work with that altar to an unknown God. I'm going to proclaim him to you now. And he goes right into it. You know what it's like? It's like what Luther says about a loaf of bread. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, what are we really praying about? Are we just praying about that one loaf of bread? Luther's recognizing, he, he writes this whole diatribe about how, what does it take, even back then, to bake a loaf of bread? It takes all of creation to bring that loaf of bread to your countertop. Author uh, uh, William Quirla wrote it this way, Ponder the humble r- loaf of bread. It starts as a seed grown in the soil. The farmer harvests the seed, the miller grinds it, the baker bakes it. The truck ships it over roads from bakery to grocery store. The grocer sells it, and you buy it with money earned from your labors. Bread is hard work. 
Can you see all of creation being drawn into this? Even the, the company that makes the lug nuts on the, on the truck that ships that bread. I mean, the whole world brought that bread. Do you see the wonder in that? Paul is saying, look at the way that the world is working together. Yes, it's broken. Yes, it fights. Yes, there's so much uh, about our fallen nature, but doesn't it still echo the tune that God originally sung over creation in the way that we come together? He's affirming the beauty of creation. He's affirming everything that he can see around him in a way to invite them into this grand narrative of what God is saying and doing and telling through Jesus Christ. Everything has to fall into place to get that loaf of bread onto your countertop. Martin Luther says this way, he says, these are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. Gerard Manley Hopkins, one of my favorite poets, he said this, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to greatness like the ooze of oil. O oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and ah, bright wings. Here one of our great Western poets stretching the language to capture the essence of common grace that we can see all around us, the common grace of God, knitting the world together, continuing to develop it, continuing to, to bring people together to do things and to produce and to provide. You know, a lot of times when I pray over a meal, I think of God's generous hand of providence, the common grace of God. Paul is affirming what he sees. He's beginning in a place of deep and wide affirmation. He's not running at the culture with a baseball bat and starting to swing at people. He's affirming what he can see. He's affirming the ways that, that they themselves are participating in the common grace of God. That, that, that term, common grace, it, it, it should mean something to you. It should ring a bell. It should say, okay, that God is good. He brings, he brings the rain and the sunshine uh, on people no matter what, no matter what they believe, no matter what they've done that day. It's a very basic building block of understanding how generous God's providence is, and Paul starts there. Second, he not only looks around the world to affirm the beauty that he sees, he sees what God is already doing that's good. So he affirms the beauty. He affirms the good. He looks around the world. He sees what God is already doing for good. He's affirming that good. Verses 27 and 28, Paul quotes one of Greece's own poets, in him, we live and move and have our being. That's Epidemides, Epidemides. Written, he'd written that poem maybe a century before. And Paul is quoting him back 
within the own, their own culture. He's found something that he can affirm. That's good. Within him, we live and move and have our being. So, see, he's building on this idea. He's saying, look, I can work with this. You know, you, you've got all these idols everywhere, and this, this place is chaotic in terms of beliefs, and it's heterodox, it's not orthodox, but, but I can work with this one altar, and not only that, I can take your own quote, I can quote your own poets back to you, and I can show you, I can build on you, on, on that whole concept that, that not only is God at work providentially, in the design and beauty of the world and the way we even work together, but he is using human beings to produce beautiful things and good things. And so he's saying, in him we live and move and have our being. It's kind of like that saying, you know, a a broken clock, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? (laughs) Saying, look, this is a broken culture. You know, there are cultures that, that do crazy stuff, like what I told you about earlier, about that rite of passage. But we can work with the broken. That's what God does. That's, that's, that's what Jesus represents. God in flesh, working with injured flesh, working with broken, fallen people. He can work with that. He can work with that to build on the good. You know, there were... There was a time in my life when I was very cynical and discouraged about the world and about ministry and about leadership in general. I think it was about 20 years ago, I I was looking around the world and I wasn't seeing what God was doing. I didn't feel good about anything. I just felt really negative, cynical. Uh, I was dealing with a really very, very difficult and conflicted environment at the time. And I was seeing human nature inflict itself on the church in the worst possible way. And I was really discouraged. And I picked up a book by Jim Collins, who I, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but this was a business book. It was a, a book written by a businessman, by people at Stanford, aimed at the business community. And they, they, they looked at the top 50 companies in, in the United States and then they had a control group of another 50 companies, and the top 50 companies in the United States they were really looking at were ones that went from good to great, and that was the name of the book. These were companies that were all going like this, and 50 of them continued to do this, and the other 50 kind of did this. And he said, well, what made the difference? And you know, one of the most powerful things I read in that book, I thought I was reading out of the Bible when I was reading this business book because it can, comes right from Scripture. He says that one of the absolute non-negotiables that take a company from good to great is level five leadership. Now, what's level five leadership? Some superstar like Lee Iacocca, who can go in and take control and command and push everybody around, and, and has a, he, he's such a charismatic figure and, and such a, has such know-how, and, 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 and nobody can turn him down? No. Level five leadership is, quoting the book, servant leadership. This is the good. I looked at, I'm looking out in the world and I'm thinking, is there any good going on at all? I mean, I'm seeing human nature inflict itself on the church. 
Who's doing good out there? And then I realize it's baked in. God's principles are baked in. That when we trust them and follow them, <laughs> we run into them. Even in, in secular society, they bump into them and say, you know, this is what it takes to go from good to great. The, the, the pinnacle of, of success in, in companies uh, in, in, in just 20 years ago, to be able to say, here is a principle that we can guide, be guided by. And they just sort of <laughs> lapsed into Christianity. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I can quote, I can, I can show you within your own culture goodness that I can affirm right here, right now. And that's what I was seeing. When I read that book, I thought, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That what puts the world back together is not just being able to say, okay, we have chapter and verse from the Bible, but to know that through the common grace of God, it's baked in. And when we line up with it, we too can participate in what is good. And that's, that's really where Paul takes it. He says, not only look around the world and see what God is doing already, but get involved. Invest. Invest in the beautiful and the good and the true. Invest in truth, in word and deed. This is where Paul takes it. This is where Paul takes it. And there's so much in this passage. And isn't it amazing that he ends up sort of in this place of judgment? How strange is that? I mean, he's talking about the design. He's saying, you know, here, here uh, I can work with this idea that there is this the unknown God. That, yeah, that's right. There's a designer. There's a, there's a creator behind all things. I can work with your poets. They're, they're, they're trying to, they're striving for beauty. They're using language to capture goodness. I can, I can reflect that back to you from your own culture. And then he talks about judgment. Now, this doesn't seem like a, a really winning way to go, does it? Like when you're trying to reach out to people. <laughs> he's affirming, right? He's affirming the beautiful, right? And he's affirming the good. And then he talks about judgment. Well, that's the one thing we're not supposed to talk about today, isn't it? And yet everybody wants to believe that there is ultimately a good and a bad that there is a right and a wrong, that there's a line that can be drawn. Doesn't everybody want to believe that? I mean, wouldn't everything just, go, just fall apart if we didn't believe that? The common grace of God speaks to us that, that we have a, a conscience, if nothing else, a conscience. And we rely on, on that conscience every time we, you know, we go through a green light. <laughs> we rely on that conscience. Every time we invest our money in, in, stock, in the stock market, we rely on the conscience to keep things in order. And this is where Paul is taking it. He's saying, in word and in deed, we need to be about what God is about. Not just cursing the darkness, but investing in truth that speaks at every level. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This investing in truth, in word and deed, that speaks at every level. In other words, we're to be about truth that doesn't just speak, but also doesn't just act in a way that just keeps up appearances. We as Christians are called to invest ourselves, our lives, in such a way that brings the truth all the way into all of life. If you go down to Haiti, for example, and you know, Leon DeLorenz, one of, the, one of our partners down there, 
Leon DeLorenz has, been, uh, has lived his life in Haiti. He's, he's almost 70 years old, I imagine. He has helped build uh, four or five churches, several medical clinics, vocational schools. He's building a high school. Now he wants to build a Bible college down there. He's, he's partnered with Samaritan's Purse. One of the things that you hear Leon say over and over again is that you shouldn't just give a fish, but teach fishing lessons. We shouldn't just be about giving somebody a fish, but teaching them how to fish. You know, it feels really good in, in terms of facing outward as a church to, to give something away and make somebody's uh, hunger go away. That makes us feel really good. But, you know, this is kind of a harsh way of saying it, but I have to say it very clearly this morning so that we get the point. Sometimes we operate in missions to pay people off and go away. Isn't it true? Sometimes the way we operate in missions is just like, here, enough of you. Imagine William Wilberforce getting up every day and fighting, uh, swimming upstream against the slave trade. Now, this is what Leon DeLorenz is doing every day. He gets up, and what's he doing? All of these non-government organizations and so many governments are pouring money into a corrupt system down there, working against the principles that make human life flourish. And Leon is saying, step by step, bit by bit, we need to help educate the next generation. Some of these folks in the current generation, I'm sorry, they're just not going to learn. They just want a handout. They don't want to hand up. And so we need to teach our young people how to, how to operate in such a way that is in line with what is good and right and true. So he's building schools. He has thousands of children in schools. That's where he's pouring himself out. It's not good enough for Leon to say, well, you know what? I know the truth, and so I'm fine. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm just going to sit in church, and I'm just going to be edified for the rest of my life. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church in Chapter 3, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This verse should give every one of us cause for pause. Fire is an image of judgment. And you know, we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged on what we do with the time and talent and treasure of our lives. And you know what? We don't have that much. We don't have that long on this earth to invest it. And I'm not saying that to, to, to scare anybody into doing something. I don't ever want anybody to do something out of fear or out of guilt. But I do want people to understand that we are accountable for the way we invest our lives. And far be it from me to keep that from you. We are accountable for the way we invest our lives. And you know what? I think if I look at the way that I spend my money and time, I could do better. Doesn't mean that I'm going to sit here and read this verse and say, oh gosh, you know, I'm afraid that God's going to zap me. That's not the point. The point is, I could do better. The point is, I have a view of what is good and right and true. I have a view of the beautiful and the good and the true. How am I investing in it? 
in such a way that when judgment comes, it's not, <laughs> my life's work isn't burned up. That instead, so much of the way I invested myself remains. See, what I see Leon doing is he's trying to bring the future near. He's trying to bring the future near into the now. He's investing his life in such a way that the world begins to be truthful, not just because we made somebody feel better for the moment, not just because we gave them a fish, but that we elevated the dignity of every person in Haiti, made in the image and nature of God, and we made the world look a little bit more like it was originally created to be. That's our mission. And if we say that it's just, you know, we're just in mission mode because we're going to go do some good deeds, no, that's, that's not it. We have to integrate word and deed. You see, motive in this whole thing matters. What do you see Paul doing? Is he cursing the darkness? Is he making people feel afraid? Is he upset? Is he, is he trying to apply guilt and pressure to anybody? No. He's saying, truthfully, here's what's coming. And I want you to see what is beautiful and what is good and what is true in your midst. And I want you to be a part of it. This is how we face outward. That's what Paul's doing. He's starting with affirmation. He's saying, look at what you're already saying. You're already saying it. You're so close. You get it. You know there's a God behind all of this. You get it. Even your own poets, I can quote them back to you, and it captures some of the goodness of what God is already doing. But be advised that the way you're investing your life really does matter, that we need to be about speaking the truth in the way that we live and move and have our being. I know some of you are very frustrated with the way that our culture is sliding, that, that as Patrick Moynihan said, that we in our culture today are defining deviance down. I get it. I understand that. It distresses me too. But what are we to do? Just curse the darkness? What does Paul do? He provides a faithful presence, even as we're called to this morning. A faithful presence to affirm what we can see, to step out in the world. I, I love the fact that we have a couple of people in our, in our congregation who want to serve on the school board. <laughs> that is a, such a beautiful thing. I love that. That's exactly where we need to be. Stepping out in that place of service. Not to rule, not to overpower, not to, not to come with an agenda, but to say, hey, look, look, at, look at how we can do better. To put our energy into a place like that is to provide a faithful presence. This is an expression of the table that Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestled with judgment, your judgment, my judgment, because that bitter cup was going to be poured out. He was going to drink it. And he wrestled with it. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. How much more then are we to pour ourselves out? How then can we not look at what Jesus did for us and say, Lord, here I am. Send me, help me face outward, help me build that bridge. Everywhere I live and move and have my being. So this morning, I invite you to this table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It's not a religious table in the sense of, 
you know, just being some ritual that has to do with rights and wrongs and goods and, 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 and do's and don'ts and shoulds and shouldn'ts. This is a table of relationship where God is reconciling the world to himself all the way into flesh and blood, bread and cup. Let's pray together. Father, if we come to this table trying to keep all our cracks from showing, then we've missed the point. The Lord is because we are broken people that we can come to this table, that you took our brokenness, you took our shame, you took our guilt upon yourself, and your body was broken for us, and your blood was shed for us. And so, Lord, as we come to this table by faith, Lord, would you strengthen us, encourage us, comfort us, and remind us that you take broken people just like us and you use us for such a glorious purpose as is your own. Lord, we are your people and you invite us. And so we thank you. We ask that you would bless this bread and cup and would you use them in Jesus' name.